You're listening to Cornerstone Conversations, a podcast by Cornerstone in Fort Worth, Texas. My name is Jeremy McNair, and I'm the worship pastor at Cornerstone. And today I'm joined by David Wilson, who's our student pastor here as well. We're usually joined by our lead pastor, Bobby Harrell, but he's actually out on sabbatical right now. So today it's just a conversation between David and I, but also we are bringing in some of our listener questions, which is one of the big things that we love about doing this podcast is we welcome and want as much listener feedback as we can. If you have any questions, comments, feedback of any kind that you think would be a really valuable asset to what we're talking about through our studies, we'd love for you to share them with us. Send us a text at 817-809-3040. We'll take all of the best and most applicable questions and we'll respond to as many of them as we can. Today is actually the very final episode of our First Corinthians series. We can't wait to conclude what a fantastic study this has been. We can't wait to dig into the final chapter a little bit today and then in future episodes move on to a completely different topic. But the whole point is we want to keep the conversation going. We love doing this. We love being a part of your day as you listen. And we want to thank you so much for being a part of these conversations. So to get today's episode started, what I really want to do is reference back to a couple weeks ago when Pastor Bobby was speaking on chapter 14. He specifically made a point to mention the equality in nature of the gifts and the way that the church is unified in those gifts and Mm -hmm. the way that that then translates to how we serve each other and serve the church body and the unifying factor between all those things because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Right. Paul uses this phrase often, brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. However, some of our church family looked at their translations that they're holding in their hands as they're listening along, and it doesn't necessarily always say brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. Some translations say brethren or brothers, right? Just brothers. So it's a very gendered look at the thing instead of an inclusive form. So we base our entire argument really on what the interpretation of chapter 14 should be based on it being a brothers and sisters statement. Yeah. So if you're looking through your Bible and you're reading and you see this as just brothers or just brethren, you say, whoa, that now changes the whole meaning of the chapter. Sure. I get why these questions would come up. So Several different people brought up this question. Let me read the question that is probably the best stated, and we'll respond to it from there. This person asked, in chapter 14, translations differ between brothers and brothers and sisters. The Greek word used is a plural masculine noun for brothers or brethren. Can you explain how the interpretations changed to include and sisters and why it's safe and accurate to do so? So, David, you and I talked about our response to this, and actually Mm -hmm. we sent these responses to these people individually, because we weren't necessarily sure if we would address it in today's podcast. But after some consideration, we think, you know, if several people are asking the question that we probably should address it because now it's something that's come up more than once. I think the best way to make an analogy is if I'm talking to a group Mm -hmm. and I don't use the word y'all, what am I going to say instead? You guys, you guys, Hey, you guys, right. Which if you were to look at that pronoun form there, you guys, if you focused in on those words, you're talking to just the the men, boys, the men, the men right? Yeah. Only because that's what a guy is. But right. we know from the idiomatic nature of that, the colloquial nature, the way that it just is a part of our pop culture. When you say you guys, you're referring to everybody that's in the room, whether it's a guy or a girl. Right. You're not trying to make a gendered statement. If I'm hearing you say you guys, and I take you too literally, Mm -hmm. then I'm going to assume you're only talking to the men in the room, which 
we could pull a demographic report even for this podcast. And I promise <laughs> more women are listening to this podcast than men. Yes. And so if we were to say, oh, you guys, and then, you know, 60% of our listeners turn off the podcast because it's no longer relevant. Right. Well, no, obviously that's not what we're saying. Right. You guys right. is just a general term. So right. long story short, that's probably the easiest comparison for today. Yes. However, there's actually a lot more than that. When translation teams come together, they have to decide if they're going to take a hyper-literal approach to sure. dealing with these kind of plural nouns. Sure. Right? So the person who asked the question said, it's a plural masculine noun. So does right. that mean many men? So when you're going in and you're translating the text, you have to decide, am I going to be hyper-literal with the way that I interpret no. these words, or do I understand that there's a broader context at play here? Yes. And you just said it well, the context will dictate whether or not you use the specific word brothers, right. or if you could use a broader term, brothers and sisters. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of historical backing to gendering things that aren't necessarily so, right? Mm. If I got on a brand new ship, it's going to be a female ship. Right. Obviously that ship... <laughs> has nothing to do with male or female <laughs> yeah. qualities. It has nothing That's to do right. with that. It's just we know. Same thing with the church, right? right? The church is the bride of Christ. Mm -hmm. And typically in vast Christian history, we call the church a her. A her, a she. A she. That's right. It doesn't mean that it's only comprised of women. Of women. That's it, exactly correct. You know, and so we have to decide when you're looking at the text or rather the translation committees mm -hmm. who look at it have to decide, am I going to understand Sure, it's calling the boat a lady, but obviously the lady is not a boat. The boat is not a lady. The boat right. is neither man nor female. There's nothing to do with that. It is a boat. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think a great example of this is in Romans. How do we know that the audience of the book of Romans is mixed gendered? Well, we know from Romans chapter 16 that there are lots and lots of representation. They're both men and women. Paul's very clear that those are his co-workers, co-ministers, co-deacons, whatever word you want to right. use there, co-apostles. He uses all of those words to describe the many different people in there. But also we know that this letter wasn't directed very specifically because Paul's never met these people. So he knows or assumes that he's speaking to a wide audience of believers right. that are there in Rome. And when he's speaking to them, there are many times where there is specific words like man or whatever. But the context of that particular passage is talking about justification by faith for any believer. Yeah. Romans 12, 1 is such a good example of this. Let me read the verse. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, mm. holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. So if we take that word in the Greek, Adelphos, and say that's only for men. Because again, Adelphos yes. is the word for right. men. Then we're saying, therefore, only men, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. Of course, this is not what Paul is intending to say. Right. Paul is talking to any believer who at any moment needs to submit their whole persons to God as a living sacrifice for him. Sure. So the CSB and the NIV both mm -hmm. deal with this by saying brothers and sisters because yeah. they understand contextually, yeah. we're not just talking to the men. Right. The men is just a generic way of saying, hey, you guys. Yeah, exactly. exactly. However, the ESV and the KJV, they translate the word as either brothers or brethren. Which again, those two translations are trying to be more faithful to the specific words. And even in the ESV, like I'm right now, I'm looking at BibleGateway.com. And when they use these specific words like brothers, like they do in 1 Corinthians 14, they do put a little like footnote or asterisk next to it. 
that says, or brothers and sisters. The specific word they're trying to translate, it is brothers, Mm -hmm. but even they are including the optional meaning because it does encapsulate that as well. Exactly. But it's hard to imagine at any point that Paul would be excluding women from the doctrine of the mercy of God being extended towards all of humanity. (laughs) Absolutely. Justification by faith is not for men only. And I think you wanted to bring up another example in Romans 3.28. Okay, so Romans 3.28 says anthropos, which is not the same word exactly. Oh, one, yes. one is brothers, uh-huh. one is men. Okay? Correct. So they're very similar, similar terms and almost interchangeable. But I mean, the difference between a brother sure. and a man, you know the difference. Right. But they're dealt with very similarly when people are translating the text. So the King James translates Romans 3.28 as, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Mm. The ESV, the NIV, and the CSB all choose the term one or person Mm -hmm. because justification by faith is not a gender-specific gift from God or statement. It's absolutely not the case. It's meant to be understood for both men and women. And if you were to take the doctrine of, we conclude that a man is justified Mm -hmm. by faith, Mm -hmm. well, that's a really problematic statement. Yeah, well, then how are women justified? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Or another example that we were coming up with was from Matthew 18. You actually, Mm -hmm. you talked a lot about this one. Yeah. So this is like the infamous church discipline or dealing with conflict passage where your brother sins against you, go to them. Then you bring a mediator. Then you go tell it to the church, that whole flow right there. There are moments in that where even I just used it because I'm using some of my, (laughs) even I just said brother, because that's how I learned this passage Mm -hmm. was as a brother. But clearly Jesus is not speaking to only men as if men only ever have conflicts. Or that men are the only ones able to reconcile the conflict. Yes, that's not true at all. Clearly Jesus is speaking to individual believers, whatever gender they may be, man or woman. Right. Any person needs to go and make their sin right with another Mm -hmm. or needs to go seek out how to reconcile with someone with whom they have an issue. So it's not just a gendered thing here. Again, the word is brother, literally taken from Greek to English. But the intention in the word is to include all people in these moments. Right. And you have to look at the context then in order to discern. So if I were to say, Kurtz Wilson is your brother, David. Obviously, we know exactly what that means. Yeah, that's very specific to my brother. That's your brother. We know what that means. Right. If I were to look out at the church body on a Sunday morning and say, good morning, my brothers. Right. It's a little more confusing in our culture and context because obviously we wouldn't say that, but there would be a general understanding that I'm talking to the crowd here. Right. And again, this is why even translations like the New King James Version or ESV or the NASB who take the Greek word and just bring it right over into English as faithfully as they possibly can. That's their intention. Their goal is to try to do that. They're not trying to create what's called a dynamic equivalence, Mm -hmm. wherein they're giving you the intent of that word, which Again, NIV, CSB, some of these other versions are trying to do that. And again, this is why you want to read with multiple versions at one time, because it helps you get to some greater clarity on these passages, which can be confusing. But even the ESV, even the NKJV, even the NASB, they recognize that even in those moments where it's Adelphos or it's Anthropos, whichever word it is in those moments, even the ESV will give a footnote to say, and this can mean brothers and sisters as well, because that is a convention even within the Greek to use those words to include both brothers and sisters. Right. So then you just have to decide, am I going to take it hyper literally or am I going to apply it contextually? That's right. This is why the CSB, which is the version that we're using Mm -hmm. on Sunday mornings, the reason why they chose to translate it as brothers and sisters is because it's very clear 
from the text that he's speaking to a mixed gendered crowd. Yeah, because both women and men can be believers. Right. It's very clear from the text, and they chose to then translate it brothers and sisters for that reason. Another great question that we got in really on the same train of thought, Mm -hmm. it says this, on the subject of women speaking in the church and spiritual gifts, the book of Titus has been taught from my Baptist background that only men can be pastors and deacons. This has then been used along with the 1 Corinthians 14 passage. The recent messages and podcasts make 1 Corinthians 14 make sense, but now what about Titus? This is a really great question. And again, coming from our tradition, the questioner mentioned, you know, growing up Baptist, that's a tradition I grew up in, you grew up in. Yeah. Coming from our tradition, what has generally happened is people will take a verse like 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35, they'll take 1 Timothy 3, they'll take 2 Timothy 2, they'll take Titus 1, 5 through 9, they'll take Ephesians 5 and Colossians. Mm-hmm. They'll take all of these together and they'll say, see, Paul is being consistent across every situation as if each one of those contexts and verses are completely equivalent. Right. So what we need to do is we need to figure out each one of those passages within their specific context and begin to speak to those specific things. Yeah. So we have to kind of uncouple them first, deal with them, and then see, are they alike? Are they analogous? Are they similar in any way? And we can decide from there. So if we were to look at Titus, what we've got here is a passage about the qualification of elders. Do you, did you want to read it for us? That way our listeners sure, know what's that. going on here. Yeah. So Titus chapter one, verses six through nine says this, an elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful message as taught so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. Excellent. So in that reading, what should stand out to the listener's ears is the repeated use of the word he, and the listener should recognize that the husband of one wife stands out there in verse six. And so what we have to do is we have to look at the passage and we have to begin to discern, is that the way it should be translated? Is that the way it should be looked at? We need to begin to dissect this passage particularly. The first thing that would be interesting for probably many of our listeners to know is that the gendered pronoun he does not show up one time in this passage or in the other elder qualification passage that shows up in first Timothy chapter three. Yeah. So that automatically ought to say something to us. Why is it that there is no gendered pronoun he to describe the qualifications of this elder if it is particularly a man? Well, the way that we get to a gendered pronoun for he is that one phrase at the very beginning that you mentioned in chapter six, which is also going to be the phrase that Paul uses in first Timothy chapter three, which is one woman man. It's translated here as husband husband of one, one, which those are the words. Mm -hmm. The Greek word is man or husband. Yeah. And the Greek word for woman is woman or wife. Mm -hmm. It can be either one. And so that presents a challenge for the translators. And again, a challenge for how then you do the rest of the passage. But if we're just thinking about this without having any bias brought to this text, the more that we examine this Greek phrase, one woman, man, the more that we realize it should not be translated husband of one wife. Yeah. This phrase actually is an idiom in the Greek. Like if I were to say to you, oh man, that's the bomb. 
Hmm. That's an idiom in English. I'm not literally saying that that thing is a bomb. I'm saying that that's cool. That's awesome. Even there, even those words, cool right. and awesome are idiomatic in English. And it shows how language can progress and move that way. But see, in the Greek, one woman man is idiomatic. All it intends to say is that there should be fidelity in marriage, that it precludes polygamists and those who are unfaithful within their marriage. And that isn't exclusive to either a male or a female. It's just for a person in general. And even staunch complementarian theologians, and I know that's a really big word, but those who would say that men and women are equal, but they have differing roles, that would kind of be a really easy way to sum up complementarian theology. Mm -hmm. Even some of the best of them, Douglas Moo and Thomas Schreiner, acknowledge that this phrase, one woman man, does not preclude women from the office of elder based upon that alone. They would have other reasons, but they would say that this phrase right here is idiomatic and it's not to be taken the way that it's been taken in our English translations because then from there, now we start applying the gendered pronoun he over and over and over again, and it leaves us very confused in the English. Right. One of my favorite examples of one of these biblical idioms is actually in the book of Amos, where it says, mm-hmm. I kept your teeth clean, or I gave you cleanness of teeth. <laughs> what does that mean? We read that in the ESV. <laughs> yeah. Like, what in the world? Right. What is that? It's actually an idiom that was then translated differently for CSB hmm. because they understood that that idiom meant that you had nothing to eat. You were a hungry people. I'm learning something right here on the podcast. I love it. Right now, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful (laughs) time. No, but it's important to know, though, that it's an idiom. It's not about how clean their dental hygiene is. Yeah. It's all about the fact that they were without and they didn't have food. They were no longer able to sustain themselves Mm. physically with sustenance, right? And so when we then look at another phrase where it's one woman man or whatever these phrases are, we can understand, wow, there are actual moments here where the meaning does change as time goes on. That's right. Of a particular phrase. And actually, we'll talk about one of those here towards the end of chapter 16, which again is another idiom that if you take it way too literally... It becomes a problem. It becomes a problem. Yeah. So here's what I want to say for our listeners who are hearing all this information we just threw out there. There is a sermon series that we did called Reverse the Curse that does this in much better detail. And we don't want to seem like we're trying to kind of sweep this to the side or whatever. No, we've, we've given you a pretty good answer here. Right. In fact, I would say that we value the question so much yes. that yes. we spent months yeah. preaching through this particular topic specifically. That's right. And so all of our sermon series can be found on our website at cbc.family media. Mm. If you're looking for this content in particular, you'll go to the Reverse the Curse series. It's also available on our podcast on all of our major streaming providers for that. But we'd love for you to get tuned into that, listen to a much more mm. in-depth mm-hmm. yes. and yes. robust answer to this question, because it's a great question. And if you're looking for resources to deal with some of these questions in your own time, you can come see one of the pastoral staff. We've got some wonderful books that we've read through, and we would love to recommend those as resources to And we have a lot of books that we most certainly would not recommend. Absolutely, (laughs) which is why you should also come to us and say, hey, is this a good book or not? Yeah, chances are we've either heard of it. One of us has read it. Or we'll read it alongside you. And we'd love to wade into some of those theological questions with you. Absolutely. So we had some really great questions. Hmm. Really great questions come in. I want to switch our attention now to chapter 13. There's one thing that I didn't get to speak on too much about on Sunday when I preached through this chapter. So we're going to deal with one thing in chapter 13 and then really spend the rest of our time today focused on chapter 16 to close out this series. So chapter 13, 
Paul goes through and he rebukes the church a little bit for the things that they're not doing lovingly. Mm. He reminds them of the way that God is loving. And then the whole moment ends with this statement. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So when I'm reading through this, and I'm trying to just do my own personal study through this chapter and through the book, where did those come from? <laughs> yeah. Like all of a sudden, all of a sudden sure. we're talking about faith, hope, and love. <laughs> sure. Only because it feels like such a thematic and a statement of thesis almost. Right. It and feels weird. Yeah. All of a sudden, we're just talking about faith, hope, and love. Yeah, when we've been talking about particularly love this whole time. Right. So I guess the question is, why are we talking about these three things together now? And the kind of the follow-up question is, faith and hope, they end and love doesn't. And what is all happening here? So I think we should discuss this out a little bit. Yeah. So what I find really interesting as we were studying this together and kind of looking through this is that faith, hope, and love are a common triad, which just means three things put together. Yeah. It's a common triad that Paul uses, not just here in this particular passage, he, oh, he uses, uses it yeah. elsewhere. One of my favorite examples of this is 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 3. He says, we recall in the presence of God and Father, your work produced by faith your labor motivated by love and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think there's about what, five or six other examples? Right, right in that kind of range, yeah. Yeah, where Paul uses this particular triad over and over again. So we know it's a phrase that he likes to use. That's right. And so I don't think it's as random as it feels like to yeah. us. Yeah. Particularly when you recognize that there are other places that Paul does this. And so it seems like a thing that he would really want to round out a thought saying mm -hmm. <laughs> because faith, hope, and love put together is kind of common usage for him. Now, one of the other thoughts that we've read and kind of studied upon is that Paul sets up two different triads in this passage again. One of the things that you brought out this past Sunday, which maybe was brand new for our people to understand, is that 13 is not just this chapter that sits on its own in poetry yeah. world about just this beautiful love, love chapter. chapter. Yeah. Exactly. There's something specific that he's doing there. He's speaking directly to the Corinthians and some of the problems that he's been talking about for the entire book. And you did such a great job bringing that out. But the three things that he brings out are tongues, prophecy, and knowledge. Yeah. And words of knowledge. Words of knowledge. Yeah. That's right. And those are the three things that he talks about at the beginning of chapter 13. And so maybe what he's doing, and we don't know this for sure, but this is a possibility. And it resonates, it's a strong possibility that's what mm -hmm. he's doing, is that he's contrasting that triad with this triad. While those things will end at some point, right. you know what won't ever end? Is our faith in Christ, is our love for God, mm -hmm. and the hope that we have in him. Yeah, and even if you look at the three gifts that the Corinthians were really hung up on, mm -hmm. they've got prophecy, they've got knowledge, they've got tongues. They thought one was just better than all the others. Right. And they made a big point of saying, look at how spiritual <laughs> we are, true. but we're especially spiritual because of this. Right. You can really then see a parallel when Paul's like, oh, you're focused on these things. Instead, you should be focused on the thing that I talk about all the time. That's right. Faith, hope, and love. And remember, if you really want one that's better than anything else, love. it's not tongues, it's yeah. love. That's right. And that's really well said. And again, we have to remember that chapter 13 comes from chapter 12. The very yeah. beginning of chapter 12, Paul once again asserts the spiritual person's criterion. Mm -hmm. It's not that you speak in tongues. It's not that you're a prophet. It's not all these spiritual gifts. Now, those are great, right? right? But that's not the sign that you're a spiritual person. Actually, the sign that you're a spiritual person is that you can, by the Spirit, say, Jesus is 
Lord. Yeah. And we would call that faith in God, which is the way that Paul's using faith here. This is not like the faith that moved mountains no. kind of stuff that he's talking about spiritual gifts in chapter 12. This is faith in God. Mm-hmm. And so what does it mean to be a spiritual person? Again, the Corinthians have made it these three serious things, really tongues being the biggest one. Yeah. And Paul's here saying, no, that's not the criterion to be a Christian, really to be a spiritual person is to have faith in Jesus, to call him and declare him Lord, to have hope that one day he will, like Paul talks about in chapter 15, resurrect your body and bring about this new heaven and new earth. And then ultimately all of this is undergirded by what God really even is, which is love. Yeah. And so then when you look at those three things as being the things that remain. That's right. Faith remains because you have the fulfillment of your faith in Christ and you will be with him for all of eternity. Hope remains in that the confident expectation that we have in God's promises coming to fulfillment and fruition mm-hmm. are forever in fulfillment yeah. in the new creation. Absolutely. And then love continues, <laughs> but is the greatest because it is still That's no right. longer completely fulfilled, but is still active in the way that we declare yeah. and profess our love to God for all of eternity. So again, these words just don't pop up out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. There's a pretty good explanation the more you look at it. And even in his description of love, love believes all things. Mm-hmm. Love Hopes, hopes, all all things. things. So again, even in his description in the chapter itself, he's not just producing these words out of nowhere. They're common to Paul's language when talking about what it means to be a spiritual person. Yeah. So our whole series has been called Zero Corinthians and Pastor Bobby loves to talk about why we named it this. We named it Zero Corinthians because this is not the first moment of correspondence. That's right. First Corinthians is a moment in the middle of the whole problem. That's right. That's right. And so there's a few moments in chapter 16, as Paul's finishing up writing this letter, that he kind of concludes his references back to whatever zero Corinthians is all about. Mm -hmm. The first one happens at the very beginning, 16 verse one. He says, now about the collection for the saints. Yeah. I would love to know what that's about. Yes. This now about thing happens a lot. And we've seen it multiple times where that's something where Paul is bringing up what they have written to him. Yeah. And so this now about thing that's happening is Paul's about to begin to reference a offering that he's sending these letters off to these churches about in order to gather some, maybe a benevolence giving. Maybe that's Mm -hmm. the best way to describe it. This is not like your regular tithe. Exactly. This is something else. This is a special one-time gift that's going to go to the Jerusalem church that's really struggling right now. They've been highly persecuted. There's a lot of issues external to their church that they're having to deal with and they need some help. Mm -hmm. And so Paul is gathering the troops. He's rousting the people. He's trying to get them to produce some money in order to send this gift off. And actually, it's why Paul ends up in Jerusalem later on, gets arrested, gets sent to Rome. It's actually what sets in motion, finally, his death in, I think, 62 or 63 AD is him going to Jerusalem. But what he's trying to do here is he's trying to gather the Corinthians together and say, we need to get this money produced. And when I go through Macedonia, I'll come and see you guys next Mm -hmm. is one of the things that he talks about. So we know from 16, the very nature of this occasional letter. This is not intended to be a theological treatise necessarily, although there is theology in it. We can go back and listen to the first few podcasts where we talk about this ad nauseum. But right here, this just punctuates the fact that this is a situational letter, an occasional letter. And Paul is saying, I'm going to come by and visit you guys. I'm going to gather this offering. I'm going to go off to the other churches, gather their offering, and I'm going to go to Jerusalem, deliver this to them. It's showing just the very common everyday thing that Paul is doing with these people. Yeah. They asked a very specific question That's right. about, hey, what do we do? with this right he's like oh yeah i'm gonna like, show oh, I'll, come oh, get I'll show you don't worry about it <laughs> that's right well and if you're taking notes on this in particular when he talks about the instructions that he gave to the galatian churches mm-hmm. 
That's coming from Galatians 2 verses 9 and 10, where he says, hey, Peter, James, and John gave me this tradition of caring for the poor. I think it's a great thing and you should keep doing it. Yeah. And so it's really coming from that tradition that Peter, James, and John, and actually I love the way that Paul references these three. He says, those recognized as pillars. Oh, that's good. What what he's saying is, hey, listen, the people that no one should argue it at all. You guys should have nothing wrong with Peter James. I know and you John. argue with me all the time. Yeah, <laughs> but the ones that are recognized as pillars, they gave yeah. us this tradition of caring for the poor, and we're going to keep doing that. Yeah, so that's right. you need to do it. And so then they ask a question: Well, how do we do it? What do we do with the collection? What are we supposed to do? Right. And Paul says, "Oh, just chill out. We'll figure it out." Right. It's yeah. basically what that whole first paragraph is about. That's right. And actually, he brings up there's two whole chapters in Second Corinthians where Paul deals with this: the offering, telling them what to do with it. He's spurring them on to even better giving. He's talking about another church. Yeah. That out gives them even though that other church is highly persecuted and has a lot of issues going on again external to them even they were able to produce all this money yeah and you corinthians come on you can do the same thing it sets up all of this stuff that we're going to see in second corinthians and again it sets up the visit that paul's going to do so again we do know like you said about this is your corinthians series there's a lot of communication going back and forth between the corinthians mm-hmm. and paul what happens is when paul shows up to see them the next time to gather this offering, we know the visit doesn't go well. It is not a good visit. And we know the visit doesn't go well because we have a second Corinthians. (laughs) We don't just have a Corinthians. (laughs) Well, and even to be fair, there's another letter that we don't have. That's right. Paul references it in second Corinthians. He calls it the letter of tears. Yeah. So clearly the relationship is still very contentious and there's still a lot of work that Paul needs to do with these people. Yet we have another letter where Paul is, Second Corinthians is pretty aggressive, mm-hmm. similar to First Corinthians. But again, it shows his love and his care for these specific people. And yeah. actually he calls out a lot of those people that he loves in this passage. We have people like Stephanus, mm-hmm. Priscilla, Aquila. Yeah. Timothy, Achaeus, and Apollos, those that he calls out, we think are the people that would have delivered the letters back and forth between Paul and the Corinthian church. Right. Which actually, this was supposed to be a team of four. You're right, because Paul, or rather the Corinthian believers, wanted Apollos to be one of those who returned to them. Okay, so this is actually really, really fascinating to me. Yeah, I love this. Because if we've already done the study of 1 Corinthians as we have, then we know that the Corinthians think very highly of Apollos. Yes, they do. We know there was a contention of loyalty between Mm -hmm. those who wanted Paul as the pastor Mm -hmm. and those who wanted Apollos as the pastor. Yep. All these things are at play here, and we think, wow, these guys love Apollos. And there's kind of this assumption, Apollos must love these people too. Right. So then you get to, in chapter 16, verse 12, it says, now about our brother Apollos. Now remember, anytime it says now about, we know that it's referring to something that they've asked. So they must have said something like, hey, where's where's Apollos? Apollos? (laughs) Send him on. (laughs) Paul says in verse 12, now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brothers, but he was not at all willing to come now. However, he will come when he has an opportunity. I'm giggling because I think this is Paul's way of saying, me and Apollos are on the same page. You wanted to pit us against one another. We're on the same team. We're on the same team. And what he says in chapter three, verse nine bears out that we are fellow workers. Yeah. Me and Apollos are on the same page together. Yep. We're not in contention. The problem is with your allegiance That's to one right. of us. We're not cool with this game. That's right. And Apollos isn't cool with this game. Right. Apollos, he does not want to come see your childish behavior. Which, that's just so fascinating. <laughs> to, to get to the very end of the yeah. letter, I can just imagine the letter to Paul. We don't know this, yeah. but I feel like 
one of the first things that they had to ask him was, hey, where's Apollos? <laughs> That's right. And Paul waits until the very end of the letter <laughs> to say, oh, by the way, you guys want to make all these divisions and factions yeah. and be aligned to a person over Jesus? Yeah. Apollos doesn't even want to see you. Gosh, he's just not interested. I just feel like it's such a sassy Paul moment. Oh, it's a sassy Paul moment for sure. Yeah. So, so good. Well, he goes on to mention some other people as well. I think earlier he mentions Timothy, that Timothy's actually going to go ahead of this group that's going on. He tells them to respect Timothy. Timothy is like Paul speaking. I mean, it's basically how he presents Timothy. This is one thing that I love about Paul and Timothy's relationship is it's exactly what discipleship should be. That's right. Paul takes Timothy out of his comfort zone so often. <laughs> yeah, sending them but to like Paul the worst knows people. Corinth is just the worst. <laughs> yeah. And you're going to send Timothy, poor little Timothy yeah. to Corinth. Yeah. But he knows it's going to be a wonderful growing experience for Timothy and Timothy's going to be better for it. And as a spiritual parent, mm. he knows that that's exactly what his spiritual child needs. That's right. That's, that's really, really good. And also, I just love that he calls out Aquila and Priscilla again. Yeah. Well, because again, Aquila and Priscilla were the ones who trained Apollos in the work right. of ministry. That's so right. again, all these people are so wonderfully tied together. They are. They're completely enmeshed. And what a beautiful picture of what Christian fellowship should be. Yeah. I trust these people. I love these people. Yeah, we're having hard conversations, but don't you remember all these people that we love? I'm going to yeah. send some people that you love back to you. That is the whole foundation. And again, that's why right. we ended with chapter 13, because this is what Paul really is all about. Yeah. Which is really where the thesis of the end of the whole thing is be alert, stand firm in the faith, be courageous and be strong Mm -hmm. and do everything in love. And I think that these are his final parting words of wisdom on purpose. I think he wants to remind them, hey, you've got all these things in your culture and your circumstances that are distracting you from the big thing. Be alert against them. Be courageous against your culture. Be strong in the faith that you have in Christ and Mm -hmm. do everything that you do with love. I think that's the parting words that he's giving them on purpose. He wants that to be the thing that they go home remembering. Yeah, that's really good. Now, you just read two potential problem verses. And based upon the questions that we've gotten in, which are completely legitimate questions, by the way, there's a phrase in here that, again, if you're reading the ESV, which is going to use the words a little more Mm -hmm. literally, it's not going to say, be courageous. Mm. It's going to say something else. Hmm. It's going to say, act like men. Men. And I want to address this again, because we've been dealing with this kind of gender thing over and over again. If you're reading the SV and you see that, is Paul talking only to the men? Is he, is or is he saying women, you need to make yourselves like men? Yeah, that's a great question. And even a different nuance to the idea there. I don't think that's what Paul's trying to do here. Well, and um, neither do most of the modern Bible that's translators. That's correct. Because again, <laughs> what you just read had nothing to do with acting like men. Yeah. I think the NIV, the CSB, NLT. The message, God's word, a lot of these yes. have, have nuanced phrases that mean something along the lines of be brave and courageous. And so we brought this up at the beginning of the podcast when we were answering those first questions that this is what we're talking about now. There's, mm-hmm. If you take this too literally. Act like a man. That's right. Then are we only talking to men? Well, of course not. We, we're not supposed to take this literally. This is another idiom phrase in the Greek that's just supposed to be exactly what the CSB and NIV and others make it to be, which is to be courageous. Yeah. And you know, one of the things that was most fascinating when we were looking at all the translations and how they handle this verse mm. is most of the time when there's a revision of a translation. Yeah. So yeah. what I mean by that is you've got the King James and then you have the new King James. Right. The King James makes it an act like a man statement. Yeah. The new King James changes it to be more of a be courageous statement. Exactly. Same thing with CSB, which is what we're using for this series. Mm -hmm. CSB translates it, be courageous. CSB is a revision of the Holman Christian Standard Bible that has a statement that's more along the lines of 
act like a man. Yeah. So anytime that a translation is revised, they usually revise this to be more nuanced of a reading as opposed that's to right. the hyperliteral idiom version. And I don't think that's conservative people laying down to liberals or no. something like that. I don't think that's what's actually happening here. I don't think that should be levied against moments like this. Well, it just says act like men. I understand that. That's literally what the words mean. But we say things like this in our English idioms all the time. We say man up. Sure. We don't necessarily mean... Become right? a man. Yeah. Or we say stuff like rub some dirt in it. That's both for a boy or a girl, a man or a woman. We're, yeah. we're using phrases that are saying toughen up, be courageous. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's the whole point. And particularly when we look back at Paul's cultural day, it is a very patriarchal culture. Mm -hmm. And so there is no phrase act like a woman. That would be an insult in his day. Yeah. So he's not going to use those specific words. He's going to use a colloquialism and idiom of the day mm -hmm. in order to convey what he's really trying to say, which is to be courageous. Yeah. So probably the final verse of extreme controversy <laughs> in this book. Uh-oh. There's is, one more? There's one more. And this one's a doozy. It says this. Verse 20. All the brothers and sisters send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Oh my. Oh my. Well, it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. So we're, we're going to be, we've got to do it. We got to kiss. We've got to kiss. This is what's going to happen now. <laughs> obviously, obviously we're making a thing yes, out of, it's obviously. not really a thing. This is another great example of yeah. a thing that made total sense. And it's just not culturally appropriate for us now. And honestly, if you want to take the book of first Corinthians very literally, yeah. which a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you'd you be gotta, breaking this command. You got to do something with this verse. Right. And we brought this out when we were talking about chapter seven, where Paul's saying, you know, if you're a husband, you should act like you're not married anymore because the time is growing near the Lord's coming back. We're not to take certain moments in the text, literally. Of course, we read the Bible as if the miracles are real, as if Jesus is actually yeah. God who he says it. Of course, there are moments where we do that. But then there are moments like this, where this is a culturally conditioned moment. It would be wildly inappropriate. And I know that we're kind of exiting this, but during a global pandemic to <laughs> greet your brother with a holy kiss. Yeah. And in our American culture, which is maybe not true elsewhere in the world, mm -hmm. but in our American culture, it might be offensive for one of us randomly to go to somebody on a Sunday morning and start kissing people on the cheeks. You know what I'm saying? Like that would be offensive and maybe turn somebody off from hearing the gospel. The other side of that coin is that there are some countries that mm -hmm. I've been to yeah. where people give out kisses as regular greetings. Sure. And, and it would be offensive on the other end. It's offensive not to. <laughs> so again, you have to take whatever the culture is, which I think is what Paul's doing here, because mm -hmm. he doesn't make this command anywhere else. This is right here specific, specific. to 1 to Corinthians because it is the context. And again, we just want to punctuate the zero Corinthians point. You have to read with a lot of discernment and a lot of Holy Spirit guidance here in these moments. Well, and a lot of people have asked me as we've gone through this study, why is this so tough? Like, why did we get this book if so much of it isn't immediately applicable to my life? Right. I mean, it's which a, I think it's a great question. It's a great question. And again, that question wishes for a Bible that maybe was a list of rules mm -hmm. or a list of commands. But again, we already got that in Leviticus. Yeah. And that didn't produce heart change. Right. And so we have the Bible that we have because the spirit believes that the Bible we have is the Bible we need. Mm. Even though it's not the Bible we want, it's the Bible that we need. And what we see from situations rather than from lists of rules is how to dynamically 
and I think pastor says it really well, freshly and flexibly apply yeah. the principle of the ethic of the new covenant love. Yeah. So David, we're here at the end of mm-hmm. the last chapter of this book that we spent months on. Yeah. I'm just thinking back on what a whirlwind it's been even for me personally, because the, the church staff here has studied this for yeah, literally years, lot. you know, long before we brought it to the mm-hmm. congregation. This has just been such a topic at the forefront of our minds. Maybe as we close out this series and close out these particular episodes of Cornerstone Conversations on this book, maybe we need to kind of decompress a little bit and talk about <laughs> what we've gotten from this and what our yeah. personal takeaways have been. Yeah, I don't know that I'm going to be able to say it eloquently, but man, this book, I've learned so much yeah. from First Corinthians. And of course, because it's the Bible, right? I think we take that for granted. But like, I didn't come into First Corinthians thinking, oh, the first four chapters are going to change the way that I think about the gospel and right. how important it is. And I didn't come in thinking about the situational nature and the occasional nature. I didn't come in thinking about how to use discernment. I didn't come in thinking about how my views of spiritual gifting would change. I didn't come in thinking that I would ever think about tongues in my life ever, but here we are saying tongues in your private prayer life is okay. And if you feel so led, go for it. There's so many things that I learned from this series when really I was focused on maybe two or three chapters when we first started. Now I feel so blessed to have walked through the whole thing with you and with pastor and with the rest of the congregation, because this book to me is more relevant now than it was before we even started. Yeah. It's dealing with hyper-individualism, people who want autonomy, people who want to shape their own destinies. Things that are so prevalent It's it's so right now. It's so right now. And instead, what Paul's saying is, no, cling to the gospel, cling to one another, cling to the spirit. How apt a word is that for right now? Absolutely. I would just echo everything you've said. I think also the way that I approach scripture is so much different now, having studied 1 Corinthians. I'd love to get one of those Bibles that has no numbers on it at all and just read it the way it's written. Right. You know, look at it paragraph by paragraph and really figure out what is the intent here? Hmm. What is he really saying to the people that are getting it? What are they getting from it? Hmm. And why are they getting it? I've learned how to ask the right questions when approaching texts Hmm. now. So now when I go to a different epistle of Paul or when I go to a completely different type of literature in the Bible Mm -hmm. even, I'm going to have a whole different set of questions that I approach the text with because now I understand how the best way to do it is, Hmm. you know? And I think that's been really valuable. I think it's been valuable for our church family. I think it's been valuable for our podcast listeners. One thing that this has done is it's given us a podcast. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's given us a whole new platform to be able to share the truth of scripture and to share what we've been learning because we have these conversations all the time. Yep. We talk around a, a conference table literally every day of our lives. Right. And we love to open up the word of God and explore the text and learn not only what was said to these people, but Mm -hmm. how then it applies and generates truth and understanding in our own hearts and lives. We talk about this every day. And the fact that now we're able to bring our church family in on that conversation. Yeah, it's fun. It's such a fun thing. And it's such a rewarding moment for us as pastors to be able to kind of give the keys to the car back to the people (laughs) and say, you know, we trust you. Yeah. As people who are engaging the word, we trust that you can yeah. also learn and understand scripture in this incredibly deep and complex way. And we mm. trust you with the nuances mm. of the word. And we trust yeah. you to be good students of it. And I think that's been a wonderful thing from the study first Corinthians through the podcast is understanding that our people are very capable and very competent 
and ask great questions. Ask great oh my questions. Gosh. Some of my favorite <laughs> podcasts we've done have been yeah. solely based on the questions that we've gotten from the right. people. Yeah, I'm just, man, I'm so blessed by it. It's, it's again, it's hard to put into words just the way I feel walking away from this. Year. I'm almost sad to leave it. Like Almost, yeah. It, it feels like we, we spent so much time on First Isn't Corinthians. Isn't there a chapter 17? Can we just keep <laughs> Well, we do have Second Corinthians. <laughs> That's but, true. We but let, let's take a break, you know? <laughs> That's <laughs> We right. don't have to go right there, you know? That's right. Anyway, we hope that you have so enjoyed our study through First Corinthians. We know that we've enjoyed having you be a part of it. We've loved doing this podcast one thing that is going to happen and one thing that is now a thing for us is that we want to be able to share our thoughts and continue the conversation through future series, through future topics. And we don't want this to end because we've really enjoyed the feedback and the communication, the connection that we have with our church family and our listeners all over the world from this kind of study. So stay tuned for future podcast episodes. If you want to re-listen to any of these or get back into your study, all of our media and materials are available on our website at cbc.family media. You're also able to view all of our podcast episodes on any of the major podcast streaming providers. Again, we have loved doing this. We cannot wait to continue our conversations with you and with our Cornerstone family as we continue to study the Word of God. <laughs>